morning, everybody. It is, uh, it is a distinct uh, privilege for me to be here with you guys. I'm going to ask you guys if you guys would just bow your heads and would you just pray a quick prayer? Say something like, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me through your word today? Would you just pray that real quick? Father, we do pray for that, God. We pray, Lord, that every person that comes, that has come here today, Lord, would be blessed by you, your presence, your word, for the glory of your name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, in a very scientific survey done by a well-known website, they asked the question, who are the top superheroes of all time? And maybe you have your own list, but here's the list that they came up with for the top five superheroes of all time. I'm sure you're very eager to find out. Number five was the Incredible Hulk. The Incredible Hulk. Number four was Wolverine from X-Men. Number three was Spider-Man. I thought that was a little bit of a reach myself. All you do is wear a costume and spin a web. That's not that legit. Number two was Batman. And number one, you could probably guess, Pastor Jim. That's right. Okay, so, yeah, it was Superman, Superman. In an equally scientific survey done by me, where I interviewed myself, I was asked the question, who are the top five most influential, significant, biblical heroes? And here's the list that I came up with. Each of them has a significant reason. Number five, I put up Abraham. Abraham. You know why? Because anybody who has the greatest VBS song named after you is legit. All right? Father Abraham, come on. You know you want to sing it right now and do the motions. Number four, I said Moses because he wrote the first five books of the Bible. That's for real, all right? Number three, David. Why? Because he had the coolest name in all the scriptures. (laughs) Number two, the Apostle Paul. I call him the Michael Jordan of church planters and missionaries. And because there are children in our presence, number one has to be Jesus because that is always the answer you say in VBS when you don't know the, the answer to that question, right? <laughs> Today we have the privilege of talking about Moses. And Moses has written more of the Bible than anybody else. In fact, Moses uh, wrote so much of the Bible that he makes the Apostle Paul, who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, look lazy. If you've ever been bored reading, reading Leviticus, think about Moses. He had to write it. Now, to attempt to take 40 minutes to talk about Moses is a bit heroic in itself. It's like trying to eat 60 hot dogs in 12 minutes. There might be one or two two people in the world who can do it, but we're not so sure if that was a good idea anyway, right? But So what we're going to do is we're going to just focus in on just one specific uh, section of Moses' story from Exodus chapter 33. Uh, but, But basically, before we get into this, I want to just give a little bit of a context of what's happened. God has raised up Moses to lead the Israelite people out of Egypt. And they go through many miracles. Remember the ten incredible plagues and miracles that God did to show his glory to all the nations. And then he brings them out and they get to the Red Sea and God splits the Red Sea, brings them through the Red Sea and then starts to put them on a journey toward the promised land. 
they begin to rebel and grumble. And finally, uh, when Moses goes up to meet with God and to get the Ten Commandments, when he comes back, he finds out that Aaron has led the Israelites into rebellion and idolatry and worshiping a golden calf. God gets angry and begins to punish them with a plague. And then in the beginning of Exodus 33, he tells them that the, an angel of the Lord will lead them to the promised land, but he himself will no longer go with them because he does not want to destroy them. His presence will not go with them. And the Bible says they began to mourn. Now, before I go into the three points of this sermon, I want you to feel on a visceral level what they felt. So I'm going to tell just two quick stories so you can kind of enter into to what it feels like to both enjoy someone's presence and then to, to grieve the absence of that presence. About 12 years ago or so, I was uh, notified by a friend that my favorite basketball player of all time was coming to a Meyer department store in Elgin, Illinois, of all places. I was living in Naperville at the time, so we, took, uh, we, we drove up 59, took about 45 minutes, we got to uh, the Meyer store because I was, I was, my whole life, I emulated my basketball game. Some of you guys, if you saw my basketball game, would question that, but my whole life I had emulated my game after Magic Johnson. My favorite player, I did a book report on him, I knew everything about him. We got into the line, it was a long line snaking around the Meyer department store. Some of you guys may have, been in, have probably been in that store. And, and this journalist comes up from the famed newspaper, the Elgin Courier, all right, all right, the global juggernaut. And uh, she comes up to me and she says, uh, sir, are you a Magic Johnson fan? I said, am I a Magic Johnson fan? Irvin Magic Johnson, born August 14th? 1959 in East Lansing, Michigan, who used to shovel the snow in the wintertime so he could play basketball? Yes. She said, sir, you're going to be in our article. I don't know why she, you know, picked me out of all the 400 or so people in the line. It might have been because I was the only Asian other than my friend. She wanted some diversity. Some of you guys are probably wondering where you've heard my name before. It's probably because you read that article. You probably clipped it out and put it in your refrigerator because it was so powerful. When we finally got to the front of that line, I, uh, I had a love letter that I'd written to him just to let him know how much affection and <laughs> I'm sure he read it. And, uh, and then I told him, I said, hey, Magic, uh, I'm a pastor and when I think about you, I will be praying for you. And then he looked at me. I may or may not have imagined this detail. He looked at me with deep affection and love. <laughs> then he put his hand on my shoulder right here. He touched me. Magic Johnson touched me right here. And then he said to me, again, I may have imagined it with affection. He said, Dave, you're doing a great work. Magic Johnson affirmed my call to ministry, people. All right, so if you don't like my sermon, deal with him, all right? And I was changed. I was skipping and hopping and hollering through that Meyer store. Magic Johnson touched me. I was in the presence of Magic Johnson. To this day, I have a jersey signed by him. From time to time, I look at it with deep love, okay? <laughs> Fast forward a couple years later, I was preaching in Anchorage, Alaska. This is my third time preaching in Alaska. The first two times I had gone by myself, but this particular trip, my mom, two of my brothers, and a full-on worship team came with me to minister at a conference of several churches in the area. After the conference, the, uh, the host said to us that they wanted to treat us all out to a one-day cruise to see the glaciers and wildlife of Alaska. 
I told them, I said, you know, you, you guys took me every time I've come. It's quite expensive. Why don't you just take uh, my family and friends? They said, no, Dave, we want to take you because before you went by yourself and I can enjoy it with your family. I said, no, no, I'm trying to be generous and humble. I said, no, no, it's okay. And they're like, all right, sure, fine. And I was like, uh, no, okay. So, so they, they went out the next day to this great cruise. They came back. My brothers come out of the, the car, and they seem extra excited. I'm thinking maybe they saw like a humpback whale or something. And they said, Dave, you will not believe who was on that cruise. I said, I said who? They said, well, just guess. I, so I guessed some people. I said, nope. They said, your favorite football player of all time, Lynn Swan, the Hall of Fame wide receiver from the Pittsburgh Steelers. They said that we could have talked to him forever. He was so nice. that They were on this little boat, trapped on this boat. I began to imagine myself stalking him for six hours. He could have done nothing about it. It was a small boat. And when I heard the news that I could have been in the presence of Lynn Swan and, and talked to him and, and touched him, and he would have touched me again right here, I fell to the ground and screamed out, No! And I'm not even over, I'm not over-dramatizing this, all right? Only, only diehard sports fans understand. To this day, I grieve that. So here are two stories. One where I got to enjoy the presence of a hero of mine. One where I missed out on the presence. And the resultant emotion and response was polar opposite. Now, this story is at a whole nother level. Because this is not about an athlete. This is about the presence of of God. Now you have to understand with Israel, they don't have a military. Right? You and I in the U.S. feel secure because we have the, the largest and most powerful military in the history of the world. That's why we feel secure as a nation. That's why you can enjoy these freedoms. Israel had no military. Imagine if you had no military. They had one, one defense and his name was God. God was everything. He was their provision. They had no welfare system. They had no government subsidies. They had God. That's it. He was everything. And so when he said, I would no longer go with you, they began to mourn. They had seen the glory of God as he delivered them out of Egypt. They had taken him for granted, for sure. But now with the words that he would not go with them, they begin to mourn. Three things that I want us to see in this text the first thing I want you to see is this, in the presence of God is where heroes are made. In the presence of God is where heroes are made. The second thing I want you to see is this, in the presence of God is where heroes are found. In the presence of God is where heroes are found. And then lastly, in the presence of God is where you will find the hero. In the presence of God is where you will find the hero. The first point is this, in the presence of God is where heroes are made. In Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 6, the word of God says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. 
Verse 4 says that when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. Distressing words. No one likes to hear distressing words. What do you think of when you hear distressing words? Some of you remember exactly where you were when you heard the words that Jay Cutler was signed to a long-term contract with the Chicago Bears. Distressing words. The Hebrew word for distressing can also be translated disastrous or causing great damage. On a more serious level, many of us, all of us probably at some point in our lives have heard words that were disastrous, devastating, damaging, distressing. It might have been the fact that your company was downsizing and you would be one of those people who would lose your job and immediately the anxiety of trying to figure out how to provide for your family. It might have been a health diagnosis. You were doing well. You appreciated your health. And then all of a sudden, you went to the doctor and they found something that you would have to uh, suffer through. It might have been the loss of somebody that you love. The imminent danger of cancer. Whatever the distressing or damaging or devastating words that you've heard, when you heard those words, there was a loss. There was a grieving. There was a sadness. There was a mourning. And that's exactly what's going on with Israel. Sometimes we don't realize what we have until it's gone, like our health or somebody that we love. And that's what's happening here with Israel. It is one of the great tragedies in the history of Israel. The threat that God would no longer be present with them. And in the midst of this distressing, devastating scene, Moses comes and begins to plead with God for his presence in an act of heroism. But I told you that in the presence of God, heroes are made. Moses wasn't always like this. In fact, if you trace back to the beginning of his calling in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, remember God calls him at the age of about 80. He had been 40 years in Egypt. At the end of that 40 years, he had murdered an Egyptian who was oppressing an Israelite. And then he was discovered, and so he fled into the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of those 40 years, a uh, bush began to burn that did not consume the bush so he walked over to the bush and God spoke to him and called him and said listen I've, I've heard the oppression of my people and I want to raise you up to deliver them out of Egypt Egypt to the promised land what was Moses response surely uh, you can ask somebody else I'm not the one no 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 Moses my presence will go with you I, I understand that but I, I don't know how to speak well and and then in Exodus chapter 4, at the end of this little section, the Lord says to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. I mean, that's a legit promise. Moses' response was much like ours. Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will, teach, he will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. That's what Moses was like at the beginning of his calling. He was just like us. Heroes aren't just, uh, just instantly made. They're made over time. 
And it took him 30 chapters in the scripture for him to see over and over and over again the glory of God, the faithfulness of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the love and compassion of God. He saw that as God delivered them out of Egypt, he, he saw that God did it all. And finally, after several, several weeks and months, he begins to believe God's presence is enough. And in Exodus chapter 33, verses 15 through 16, he pleads with God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You see, Moses has transferred and been transformed from saying, God, your presence is not enough, to saying, God, your presence is all we have. And it's all we need. And a hero was made in the presence of God. Several years ago, just a few years ago actually, I was uh, praying at the chapel in Wheaton College, my alma mater. There's a little uh, chapel in the Billy Graham Museum. And I was seeking the Lord, praying, fasting, reading the word, and, and worshiping as I began to ask God, God, where do you want me to minister next? It was in a crossroads. I was getting some offers from uh, Southern California, some significant churches, and and I had an offer to plant a church with an existing church here. And then I, the fourth option was to plant a church, like a parachute plant, just on my own. And I, from what I hear, this church actually 30 years ago was a parachute church plant as well. And so I began to seek the Lord in the Word of God. And as I was reading the Word, God uh, spoke to me to read Exodus 33. So I opened up Exodus 33, this chapter that I'm preaching to you today. And as I read through this chapter, I got to this section in verses 15 and 16 where Moses begins to plead with God for his presence. And God spoke to me in that moment and he said, Dave, I want you to plant a church in the city of Chicago. My presence will go with you. Is that enough? And when God asks you that question... The wise thing is to say yes, right? So I said yes, but I didn't say that without a lot of unbelief and a lot of trepidation. The churches that were offering me uh, uh, packages were offering me some significant salaries, some significant financial security. If I planted a church by myself, I was offered nothing, no people, no location, no building, nothing except a promise from God that his presence would go with. That night I went home, about a few hours later, I got an email from a guy from China who I'd never asked him for money in my life. I met him once or twice. And he said, Dave, I woke up and felt compelled to give you a check for $2,000. Where should I send it to? And that began a journey of faith to this day where God's faithful presence and provision has done greater things in our church than we could have ever imagined. So here God tells me to plant a church. Now what do you do? What would you do if God said, hey, go plant a church in Chicago? How do you start? So I literally would drive around different neighborhoods in Chicago trying to figure out a place to minister. I remember driving through the near west side of Chicago. I saw a guy uh, smoking and snorting cocaine in the middle of a Popeye's chicken in broad daylight. My heart broke. Through the grace of God, we planted a a small church on the near west side of Chicago in an African-American neighborhood in a small warehouse with an empty field where the housing projects used to be. Gathered a core team of 20 people. Some of them are here today. I met a couple at a circus, at a Cirque du Soleil. They joined our core team. I met another couple at a social party, inviting them out to lunch. At the end of the lunch, I said, hey, would you pray about joining our core team? They said, we're in. 
I was like, are you sure? You just met me. Could be a cult leader or something, you know? And these random people began to join this core team. Why? Because God's presence was going ahead of us. And in 2012, we launched a church in a little warehouse that seated 100 seats total, hoping that some people would show up. 168 people showed up in that little room. 68 people didn't have chairs to sit in. We grew so fast that we had to plan a second location. Our total tithe for that year was $48,000. To rent a place in downtown Chicago, more. So I asked my staff to pray that God would provide a place for free. And then randomly, this guy who I never asked him for money heard about our story and said he would like to pay the one-year rent for our new building, downtown location, in one of the most unchurched areas in Chicago. The first week of that church plan, I remember preaching to all these strange faces. And there was one person in that room that was the most attentive person in my sermon in the whole group. So I asked my friends, hey, who is that guy? No one knew who he was. Eventually this guy knew who he was. He said, oh, that guy, he's a Buddhist. He was a Buddhist anesthesiologist who dragged his Christian wife who was fed up with the church to church so he could learn about Christianity. Four weeks later, I approached him. I said, hey, man. Of all the people listening to my sermons, you seem the most into it. Can I just ask you, what do you think about Christianity? He said, uh, I, man, one day I'd love to, to live like Jesus lived. I said, well, before you learn to live like Jesus lived, you need to see Jesus as your Savior. Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that Jesus alone died for your sins and rose again? He said, I already believe that. I said, when? He said, the first week you preached the gospel, I knew that it was true. We bowed at that altar to pray to receive Christ. Ten minutes later, he found out that I was starting a new Bible study for a bunch of students from Thailand, five of whom had never heard the gospel, didn't know who Jesus was. They live in our cities. People who don't know who Jesus is in our cities now. And he said, can I help out? Ten minutes into his, in, into his faith, he wants to help reach other people with the gospel. We call that an overachiever. <laughs> so the next day, on my way to the uh, Bible study, I call him up. I said, hey, bro, can you give your testimony today? He said, Dave, what's a testimony? He was so unchurched, he didn't know what a testimony was. So me, with all my theological training, I said, listen, tell them what Jesus did to you yesterday. So we get to the Bible study. I'm an evangelist. There's nothing greater than sharing the gospel with somebody who's never heard of Jesus. We had a translator that God provided miraculously. Somebody who spoke fluent Thai and English. And through this translator, for the first time in their lives, they heard the gospel. At the end of that presentation, one of them cut me off and she said, if this is the gospel, it's too good to be true. I said, then you understand it. And then I asked my friend to share his testimony. I threw my phone on the table secretly and put it on record. And then he began to share his testimony with no training at all. This is what he said. He looks at them with intensity. Now again, he's Thai American. So they all respect him because he's a doctor. And he looks at them and he says this, have you ever experienced pure joy? They said, no. He goes, neither had I, because I was Buddhist just like you, until I went to this church and heard the gospel. And then I experienced a joy that I'd never known before. And then one of the students said, you can stop talking, because it looks like you're crying, because he was. Because after one day, his life had been changed by the gospel. One of those students in that group came to our Bible study for another five months. Five days before she moved back to Thailand. 
I asked her one last time, are you ready to receive Christ? She was scared to receive Christ because she knew that her family might reject her. And on that day, the last Saturday service before she moved back, she bowed her knee and we baptized her in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And a girl who never knew who Jesus was came to know Jesus Christ. And these stories are happening all throughout our church, 30-some nations in our church. We now have five locations that are being planted out throughout America with a church that had almost no money, no people, no location, none of that. Just a promise that God's presence would be enough. You know, I, I thought about your church. Your church that is so blessed with resources beyond anything that I could even imagine. But what if 3,000 people on this campus and 2,000 others on the other campuses, what if the 5,000 of you began to believe and cry out to God and repent and say, God, may we believe that your presence is more than enough, is all that we need. Can you imagine the kind of culture-shaking revival that would break out at Christ's community and the kind of heroes that would be made in the presence of Almighty God? And the presence of God is where heroes are made. And the presence of God is where heroes are found. In Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 through 11, in the midst of this mourning and distress, Moses writes this. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Do you see what's happening here? There's distress. There's mourning. And then Moses just puts this little section in and says, listen, this is what's happening in my life. This is where I, where I get the faith to believe that God might listen. This is where I cry out to him and where I hear his word. It's in the tent of meeting. That's where I run to in the midst of trial. That's where I run to when things are uh, overwhelming, when I feel like I have no solution. I run to the presence and the word of God. In the midst of the severest of trials, where do you go? Where do you run to when things are falling apart at your home? Where do you run to when your son or daughter is running astray from the Lord? Where do you go when you're feeling the pain of loneliness? And so many of us, we, we turn to the internet, or we turn to busyness, or we turn to people, or we numb ourselves with watching TV, or movies, or Netflix, or Hulu. You want to know where heroes are found in the midst of the severest of trials? They're found in the presence of God, and in the Word of God. Heroes are not ones who never hurt or struggle. Now, the greatest heroes that, that you know in your life the men and women of God who have made the greatest impact for our culture are ones who have suffered deeply. Heroes are not ones who never hurt or struggle, but heroes are ones who run to God when the afflictions and tests come their way. I was thinking about superheroes. When Clark Kent sees imminent danger, where does he run to? Where does he run to? A phone booth. When, when Bruce Wayne sees that there's trouble coming his way. And there's a storm coming, Bruce. Where does he run to? The Batcave. 
when the trials of life, when the family's struggling, when you're struggling with anxiety at your job, when you feel overwhelmed, where does the broken, unbelieving, struggling, weak, insecure, inadequate, insufficient Christian run to? The presence of God, to the tent of meeting, to the word of God. I have a hero in my life. She happens to be here today. She's the greatest hero of my life. She's my mom. My mom is an immigrant from Korea. She was the daughter of the mayor of the third largest city in Korea. She was a professor at a university, one of the only female professors at the time in all of Korea. She had everything that would make you comfortable. But then God called my family to America. My dad was studying graduate studies in Austin, Texas, and then got his PhD at Berkeley. Imagine the immigrant story. She has everything, a social network, family, language, prestige. And she comes to a country where at that time nobody, nobody even knew much about Korea. She couldn't speak the language. She didn't have any friends or family. She was raising two sons. My father didn't speak English and he had to study at a graduate level. The stresses of that immigrant culture, that immigrant transition began to weigh on their marriage. My father began to take out a lot of that hurt. A lot of stress upon my mom. And for almost 40 years, their marriage was difficult. And by the grace of God, the last few years of their marriage before my dad passed away were reconciliation and healing. But during those 40 years of wilderness, there was so much pain in my mom's heart. And as a kid, I remember how many times my mom would be crying in pain, crying in hurt, crying in loneliness. And I want to tell you something. There's nothing greater. You can disciple your kids with content all you want, but it's a life lived in the presence of God that is the reason, humanly speaking, without a doubt that I'm a pastor today. I saw my mom run to God's presence. That was her phone booth. Whenever the trials came overwhelming, whenever she felt like she couldn't make it, whenever she felt like the pain was too deep, she ran to the presence of God and the Word of God. I have so many memories of her singing the old hymns as she washed the dishes, as she drove us to work or to school, as she, as she uh, cried out to God in the morning in pain. I, I know so many hymns by memory because in the midst of the pain she cried out to God, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And I remember so many times my mom singing the old hymns because she had only one hope and that was the presence of God. I remember one particular day I was living on the East Coast as a pastor and she called me up. And the only time I remember that she sounded depressed. She sounded in despair. And my heart broke for her. Because through all the trials, I felt so helpless to be able to create any kind of solution for her. I called her up the next night as I was praying for her. I called her up to check up on her. And she sounded like a new woman. I said, Mom, what happened? You sounded so uh, despairing yesterday. She said... I woke up and spent a few hours in the Word of God. I think she read through either Isaiah or Jeremiah, the whole book that morning. And as she meditated on the promises of God, God lifted her out of that despair and gave her hope. You see, heroes are not people who never struggle. But they're people, when they do struggle, they know where to run to. The presence and the promises of God. In the presence of God is where heroes are made. In the presence of God is where heroes are found. And lastly, in the presence of God is where you will find the hero. 
Some of you guys are probably saying, that sounds exactly like the second point. This is radically different. And the presence of God is where you will find the hero. I was thinking about our culture and how, you know, all these Marvel movies are coming out, right? And, 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 and there's this longing in our culture for a hero. And I was thinking about my favorite movies, making me think about your top ten favorite movies. And I was thinking about how most of my favorite movies are about heroes. My favorite movie of all time, an older movie in the early 80s, one best picture, was a movie called Chariots of Fire. It's my favorite movie, bar none, by far. It's about this guy who... Uh, went to be a missionary in China, but before that he ran in the Olympics and, and won the gold medal. Eric Little. And I remember the scene where his, his sister is judging him because he's getting too worldly and forgetting his call to mission. And he says, Jenny, Jenny, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Some of you guys are stunned by my authentic Scottish accent. <laughs> Let's try to focus here on the content, okay? That's the greatest line in movie history. And he was saying that in everything I do, it can be worship if it's done unto the Lord. My second favorite movie of all time, Braveheart, happens to be Scottish as well. I don't know why. It's just a coincidence. Maybe I'm part Scottish somewhere. You remember how he fought for freedom for Scotland from the oppressors. And he's saying all these crazy lines. One of my favorite lines again, every man dies, but not every man really lives. And you're like, ah. Oh. And every man watching that movie wants to get into a kilt and fight for freedom, don't you? <laughs> or maybe that was just me. One of my other top ten favorite movies, Dumb and Dumber, Hero. <laughs> all right, maybe not all of them are about heroes, but most of them. But not just in our culture, in real life. If you ever, if you ever struggle with singleness for a long time, you know the loneliness, and you long for a spouse, you long for a partner. And listen, I understand that this is not the godly desire or craving, but, but in the end of the day, if we're honest with ourselves, what we're asking for is a hero. And no one will ever be that ultimate hero, but we want a hero to alleviate the pain of loneliness. You talk to any orphan, so I minister to orphans in Southeast Asia, they cling to you when they find out you're about to leave. What are they longing for? They're longing for a mom or a dad who will love them and provide for them. They want a hero. And not only do we want a hero, but we want to be a hero, don't we? How many of us, when we got married, looked at our spouse and said, you know what, in our mind, everything I want to do, I want to be faithful to you. I want to, I want to be humble. I want to be gracious. I want to forgive. I've officiated so many weddings. And you look at them and they're lovely and they, they want to be a hero to each other. And then they find out the reality of their own brokenness comes out in that marriage. And they struggle with the reality that they can't be a hero all the time. The disappointment in themselves causes them sometimes to run to other addictions and other idolatries. What parent, when they look at their kid, their first newborn kid, doesn't want to be a hero to that kid? But there's this painful reality, isn't there? If we're honest, that we know that we have all disappointed. We've all been far from being a hero. Recently in this Comic-Con conference, there was a quote from a director of the Marvel Avengers series, Joss Whedon. And this is what he said. It's profound. He said, I keep hoping to be the hero of my story, but I'm the annoying sidekick. I keep hoping to be the hero of my story, but I'm the annoying sidekick. And that's one of the realities that Moses is about to encounter in the presence of God. 
He wants to be the hero for Israel, but he's going to find out that he's just the annoying sidekick at best. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 30 through 35, the word of God says this. This is the, right after God's anger burns against Israel for rebelling in idolatry with the golden calf. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Do you see what's happening? Moses says, listen, I know you sinned. I am going to try to make atonement for your sin. I'm going to be the hero of this story. And what does God say? No, 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 listen. I'm going to reject that request because they're going to have to pay for their sin. And the ones who have sinned will have their names blotted out from the book of life. Moses' request to atone for the sins of Israel was rejected at least for two reasons. Number one, because Moses himself was a sinner and he needed atonement. You remember the beginning of the story of Exodus, he murdered an Egyptian. And then can you imagine how awkward it must have been when the Ten Commandments were given and it was like, and by the way, the next commandment, thou shall not kill. That must have been uncomfortable for Moses to hear that one. You see, Moses was a murderer. He was a sinner. So how does a murderer atone for the sins of another murderer? It's not possible. You see, you need somebody who's perfectly righteous, who deserves no punishment to trade his reward so that he, uh, he can atone for the sin of another. And who would do that? The second reason why it's rejected is because Moses has no idea the full extent of the punishment and suffering that someone would have to go to to atone for the sins of not just one person but the whole world. Only Jesus can be the ultimate hero. Remember not too long ago, uh, my brother uh, walked away from Jesus for about 15 years. And then he returned to the Lord and soon after he had his first daughter. In the Korean culture, when uh, a baby turns one year old, they have a huge birthday celebration. And so we all flew out to his home in the East Coast. And, and um, her name is Kayla Grace. She is objectively the cutest baby of all time. And... Uh, and so uh, we had a worship service, and the pastor at the end of the service asked my brother, would you be willing to pray a prayer of blessing for your daughter? To our surprise, my brother, who had just come back to the Lord, agreed. And we were eagerly awaiting what he would pray. And this is what he prayed. He said, Father, I've never known a love like this before. And then he began to cry. He says, every night I look at my daughter Kayla hopelessly in love. And then he began to weep. He said, you also had one child, Jesus. He came into this world for the sin of our world and he died on that cross and as he was in anguish, he cried out to you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with tears, my brother said, if that was my daughter, Kayla, crying out to me in pain, I would have torn her off of that cross and held her in my arms to comfort her. But you allowed your son to stay on that cross to suffer for our sin because of your love for us. And then my brother said what well, we should all say every day. He said, I don't understand this love. You see, Moses wanted to be the hero for Israel. Just like you want to be the hero for your husband or wife and 
how you want to be the hero for your kids or you want to be the hero for your church or you want to be the hero for your friends. But I want you to know something. You have no idea what you're asking. You can't do it. You are at best an annoying sidekick. You see, there's only one capital H hero. And it's not you. His name is Jesus. You are at best a lowercase h hero. And I want to tell you something. John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. That's great theology. You have no idea how much healing and relief and peace could come into our hearts if you and I would believe that Jesus alone is the hero. When you come to the presence of God and you believe this truth, I want to tell you three things that will happen. A hero will be made. A hero will be found. And most importantly, you will find out you're not the hero. Jesus Christ alone is the ultimate hero. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your presence and your promises would pursue every person that is hearing this message. And Lord, that they would find out the great truth that there's only one hero in history. And his name is Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen.